0: This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the City of Bisbee.
1: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet baker Don Guerra of Barrio Bread in Tucson. He's been recognized with one of the most prestigious food awards in the country. Renowned travel writer Tom Miller shares stories from his book, Where Was I? A Travel Writer's Memoir. Adiba Nelson reads an excerpt from her autobiography, Ain't That a Mother? and Remembering Baxter Black. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Earlier this week, an important member of Tucson's gastronomic community was recognized nationally for excellence. Don Guerra is a master baker at Barrio Bread at Broadway and Country Club. He received the James Beard Outstanding Baker Award at a ceremony in Chicago, Illinois, and he talks about the experience with Tony Paniagua.
2: Don, how did baking come into your life? I was reading a little bit about you, and it says you had two bakeries in the 90s, and then you became a school teacher at an elementary school for seven years.
0: Yeah, so I moved to Flagstaff in 1991 after leaving the University of Arizona. And second day of living in Flagstaff, I landed a baking job, and I knew from that first evening in the bakery that this was the career and craft I wanted to pursue. Teaching bread and making bread that had always been my passion, but I just wanted to take this detour to kind of figure out life a little bit, and I thought that the College of Education and the teaching experience would really help me hone my skills for being a bakery owner. Um, I learned so much from the University of Arizona the program, and then my years of teaching, I'm now comfortable public speaking, I'm a better leader, I know how to set up a learning environment and lead a team and feel more confident in my interpersonal and interpersonal skills.
2: And this may sound like a silly question, but what is your reaction to having won the James Beard Award?
0: I'm elated, you know, by this award. I know I put in years of work, now three decades of being passionate about bread making, but this moment has taken me by surprise, it's a lot of shock, you know, to be on this level, the highest culinary level of awards. And I feel proud because I feel so much encouragement from my community. And I know I have a level of responsibility and obligation to my fellow Tucsonans to represent them well and continue with my education outreach for the community and offering. I'm having a great time, but I am not in this to achieve the accolades i'm in this to achieve a sustainable local grain economy bread making and community support here in tucson that's the most meaningful thing to me it is nice to be celebrated and acknowledged for my craft and what i do as a bread artisan but these accolades just help to give momentum to regional grain economies And so we're seeing this across the nation, these regional grain bakeries pop up. And it's because of this attention that these local grain bakers are being given.
2: Moving forward, any special plans? How long do you think you'll be in the uh, kitchen making wonderful
1: breads?
0: I hope it goes on. I just continue doing more of the same. I'm very excited to have an opportunity to teach more and to lead more, maybe in a different capacity. Instead of making the bread daily, I can ease up on that because... I'm not getting any younger, and those early mornings come (laughs) very early, but I'll never stop baking bread. I'll always be hands-on. I'll never be an absentee owner, and I love sharing my craft with others and inspiring a younger generation to gain interest and continue to make barrio bread so it will live on forever in our community.
2: Don Guerra, thank you very much for joining us, and congratulations once again.
0: Okay, thank you very much.
1: Tom Miller was called one of America's best nonfiction writers by the San Francisco Chronicle. He's known for writing about his travels across the Americas, Africa, and Spain. His new collection is called Where Was I? A Travel Writer's Memoir. The book finds Miller looking back at a literary career that he describes as 50 years of successful unemployment. In the first chapter of his book, Tom Miller shares personal details about his current
3: state of health. One. I know Parkinson's my left leg has involuntary tremors my right arm doesn't swing my left knee buckles on occasion I use a walker even with a walker I move very slowly when I'm seated my body invariably lifts to the right much of the time I can't smell or taste a sensation called anosmia sometimes dull pain blankets the entire left side of my body My jaw tremors now and then, though no one seems to notice. I suffer from OAB, that's overactive bladder. Often I need 25 minutes to get out of bed in the morning and just as long to get back in bed in the evening. During the day, I sometimes freeze, unable to simply move my legs, and in the middle of the night, restless leg syndrome kicks in. If that doesn't occur, then the bottom of my left foot sometimes feels like it's standing on a red-hot waffle iron a condition known as peripheral neuropathy. My handwriting gets smaller and increasingly illegible as I age. That's called micrographia. Sometimes I awaken with trimel. I never knew what a grab bar was until I needed one. No alcohol, no swimming pools, baths, nor climbing on ladders. Doctor's orders. I use a three-fingered sock aid to help me put on my socks in the morning. I nod out for about five seconds many times a day. Consequently, I no longer drive. In my hands, twist-off bottle caps seldom twist-off. I adhere to the physical therapist's maxim, nose over toes. My vocabulary is slippy, leading to frustrating mid-sentence pauses. When the medical clinic operator asks whether I want neurology or urology, I tell her either one, I've got business everywhere. My voice, once clear, is now grainy. At least once a day, I'm afraid I'm about to fall down. I take 49 pills a week. Last year, I had hernia surgery, the right side this time. Earlier, my ear, nose, and throat man sent a tiny camera down my esophagus, a procedure much like the one my gastroenterologist performed. From head to toe, I have a doctor for just about every inch of my body. I suffer from a progressive disorder that can be slowed but not reversed. Some of my symptoms apply to other ailments. But my illness envelops them all. It's called Parkinson's disease. I'm a barrel of laughs.
1: And as he reveals in this next piece, travel writing wasn't exactly a literary craft that he expected to find himself mastering. Again, Tom Miller.
3: Eighteen, travel literature. It seems I was a travel writer. I had little awareness of travel writing as a genre, but when On the Border came out, reviews invariably referred to it as travel literature, a category I had never really considered. Since then, I've learned this much. Great travel writing describes what's going on when nobody's looking. It consists of equal parts curiosity, vulnerability, and vocabulary. It is not a terrain for know-it-alls or the indecisive. The best of the field can simply be an elegant natural history essay, a nicely writ sports piece, or a well-turned profile of a bar band and its music. A well-grounded sense of place is a challenge for the writer. We observe, we calculate, we inquire. We look for a link between what we already know and what we're about to learn. Although I've openly embraced it, the name travel writing sometimes makes me uncomfortable too. It's as if travel writing was considered a second-tier calling, nonfiction light. Henry Miller, no relation, succumbed. When he lived in Paris, Miller wrote the odd travel piece for a friend's publication. They were easy to do because I had only to consult the back issues and revamp the old articles, he confessed, in Tropic of Cancer. The principal thing was to keep the adjectives well-furbished. Be skeptical of writers who talk of snow-capped peaks, shy but friendly natives, and bustling marketplaces where the beadwork is always intricate. Avoid the word locals. It's condescending. The essayist who calls the town quaint, the plaza charming, the villages nestled, or the streets teeming, has no literary imagination. Distrust any writing that opens with a cabbie driving in from the airport, or closes quoting a bartender at last call. The finest travel writing gets under the skin of a locale to sense its rhythm, to probe its contours, to divine a genuine understanding. We shed pre-, mal- and misconceptions about a land— then sneak up on it and develop our own prejudices. If you must use Wikipedia, treat it as a guide, not as a source. Surely as buses plunge off Peruvian mountainsides and Norwegian freighters collide with Liberian tankers, the basic ingredients of formula travel writing will endure. My favorite travel accounts are full of polemic, prejudice, and adversity. Revelation, conquest, and triumph... The best travel writing elegantly addresses first-person sociology, economics, and anthropology, history, geography, and politics, biology, culture, even criminology. Its refreshing honesty reveals a world of surprising love and disappointed fools, unforeseen circumstance, and invigorating challenges. Travel writing is not prone to niceties, either. Somebody must trespass on the taboos of modern nationalism, wrote Robert Byron in The Road to Oxiana business can't, diplomacy won't. It has to be people like us. Travel literature usually consists of writers from industrial countries visiting far less developed lands. For a memorable variation to this regrettable state of affairs, read An African in Greenland by the Togan Tet michel Compassi from the 1980s, or from a century earlier, the Cuban José Martí's essay on life in the States. Not surprisingly, there is little tradition of homegrown travel literature in Namibia, Belize, or Ukraine. Our country is like a cow fallen over a cliff, laments Mexican author Jose Ruben Romero in Notes of a Villager, rich in spoils for the crows of other nationalities. And as an unrepentant crow from another nationality, I have enthusiastically picked at the rich spoils the world has laid bare. I always go back, because somewhere in the world, another cow is always falling over another cliff.
1: That was Tom Miller reading excerpts from his newly published collection Where Was I? A Travel Writer's Memoir. Mm ¶¶ Adiba Nelson is a Tucson-based author and activist. She's recently been traveling across the U.S. to promote the release of her autobiographical book, Ain't That a Mother? And next, we'll hear her read an excerpt. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to this show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of AZPM.
4: This is Adiba Nelson, and I am reading an excerpt from my new book, Ain't That a Mother?, published by Blackstone Publishing, 2022 a content warning. I will be speaking about my experiences with postpartum depression, and this particular excerpt details my first day alone with my newborn daughter. What happened later that day is hands down one of the most frightening, heartbreaking, and truly unfamiliar experiences of my motherhood journey. Remembering it, I don't even know the woman I'm about to tell you about. I'd never met her before that day but apparently she lived deep inside of me and just needed an opportunity to introduce herself. It was around 6 p.m., and Emory had just woken up from her last nap of the day, screaming bloody murder at the top of her pint-sized lungs. She was hungry and had no qualms about letting me know. I got up from the couch and walked into her room, already feeling the anxiety rise in my chest. In my head, I was trying to talk myself down out of the tree I was climbing and root to the highest limb I could find. I wanted to get as far away from my child as I could. In reality, I was quietly swaddling Emory as fast as I could so I could place her in her favorite chair and start making her bottle. I needed the screaming to stop as fast as possible. As I attempted to fold the bottom of her blanket up and over her feet, I noticed that my hands were shaking and in my mind, I was getting higher and higher in that tree, closer and closer to that far out limb. I managed to get her swaddled pretty tightly, perhaps a little more tightly than need be, and got her to her chair, but she wouldn't stop screaming. She was getting louder and louder by the second and the limb was getting closer and closer. That far out limb was now within reach. This tiny baby, who probably felt like I was starving her, scrunched up her face and screamed and wailed the most piercing scream I had ever heard. Every breath and wail felt like an indictment of each of my failures as a new mother. I felt the hot tears pour out of my eyes. And that's when I grabbed the limb. I bent down and picked Emery up out of her vibrating chair and held her at arm's length. She was still screaming in my face, but I refused to hold her close to me, to comfort her. Instead, I held her at eye level and screamed back at her. What? What do you want? Why won't you stop screaming? Stop it. Just stop. What is wrong with you? Stop it. In my mind, I felt that far out tree limb I had grabbed onto begin to splinter. In reality... I felt my grip on my screaming daughter's swaddled body tighten and in a brief moment of clarity I knew exactly what was about to happen if that limb broke, if I didn't put her back in her chair immediately. I was about to shake my baby. I saw her head in my mind snapping back and forth on her tiny neck. Of all the horrific images that had paraded themselves across my frontal lobe since the minute we left the hospital, This image scared me the most because it was real. It could actually happen. I could actually shake and potentially kill my child. I put her back in her chair before that limb gave way completely. I think I scared the crap out of myself. I was a child and family social worker with a background in child development. I knew all too well what happened when parents shook their babies. And I knew that at that very moment, I was definitely not in my right mind. I was too high up in that tree, too far out on that limb, and I needed to climb back down as fast as I could. I may have been in the middle of a complete mental breakdown, but I knew that regardless of the thoughts I was having, I could not hurt my daughter. I stared at her, still screaming in her chair, still hungry, and walked past her into the farthest corner of the kitchen. I leaned into that corner, slid to the floor, screamed at the top of my lungs and pulled at my hair, tears flowing uncontrollably from both of us. I cried and screamed and cursed God for what felt like an hour. I felt so ill-equipped for this so-called gift he had given me. Everyone had always told me I was going to be such a good mother and I had always seen myself with four or five children. But here I was, faced with one, and I couldn't even handle our first day alone. I was terrified. I was devastated. I felt lost and alone and truly out of my element as well as my mind. I didn't know a single person who had ever experienced postpartum depression, and the only things I'd ever seen about it was in Lifetime movies where white women killed their babies in bathtubs. This wasn't a black woman thing. This wasn't a Puerto Rican woman thing. And if it was, we surely didn't talk about it. Ever. Not to each other, at least. I had managed to climb down out of the tree, but there was no one to tell about how high up I'd gone or what I'd seen.
1: Adiba Nelson's memoir, Ain't That a Mother, was just released by Blackstone Publishing. You can find much more from Adiba Nelson on her website, thefullnelson.net. Cowboy poet and philosopher Baxter Black passed away earlier this week at age 77. He was at his ranch in Benson, Arizona. Back in 2017, That's where Arizona Illustrated producer Mitchell Riley met Baxter Black to spend some time together on a monsoon afternoon.
2: I am writing for the cowboy. Many good ranchers and rich oil men, I love them all, I do. And if they like being around cowboys, that's fine. But when I write the story, I'm aiming at the guy that's working for them, because that's me.
5: It started with milking the cow and feeding the chickens on his parents' place. When
2: we went out to feed the chickens, we had this mean old rooster.
5: Seems all things agricultural were in his blood from the start. His first foray into poetry came years later, in a college class.
2: And I wrote this poem, and it was a... I, I know it had a religious point to it. But it came back from the English teacher, and at the top, then they had those old red wax pencils. Had a big red wax circle with an F in it. (laughs) And the teacher had written, write about what you know.
5: Well, he knew hard work and he knew cowboys. And over time, he went on to write about what he knew.
2: Cowboy poetry is about wrecks. Horse wrecks, dog wrecks, cow wrecks, ship wrecks financial wrecks, and that's, uh, I guess, my place in life too.
5: His most recent effort is called Lessons from a Desperado Poet.
2: I dedicated this poem to a friend of mine who fell while sitting on a mule's neck backwards and broke his back. So I wrote this for him, but it applies to a lot of people who lose their minds sometimes. It's called Living on the Edge. There but for a whim of fate go you and you and I. Any man who chases lightning or thinks that he can fly. Are we stupid? Are we crazy? (laughs) Are we rebels without cause? No, the reason is much simpler. We bet the pot because the drummer who keeps time for us stays just beyond the ledge and one only hears his cadence when one's living. On the air. You'll never know just how much I love you. You'll never know just how much I care. I've got blood, blood center, I've had a heart stint done, and so when you get in that brush. Sometimes you come out and look like you've been in a sword fight.
5: Baxter Black, the prolific poet and humorist to folks of the country and Western persuasion. Farmers, ranchers, cowboys, and those who wish they were one. As to being a cowboy, Baxter says it's not something you decide. You either are one or you aren't.
2: Listen, we got thunder. It means we're going to have lightning and it's going to rain. And, uh, I'm gonna to get to
5: watch it. When he's not writing poetry and reading to his listeners, he rides alongside his longtime friend and ranch hand, Francisco. And if you ride long enough, you're bound to get bucked off.
2: I did, I did get bucked off. And it was a horse that I had been riding for a year. And the first two leaps, I was in the leaves, and the branches. And then we came out of there, but I had one reined in my hand. And I just let flat on my back. But I still had a hold of the rain. <laughs> I was proud of that. Francisco said, it looked like a rodeo. You know, you gotta be able to take a fall financially. If you get your heart broken, you gotta get up and keep going. If you lose your job, you gotta get up and get back on a horse. <laughs> Stupid as it may sound. Francisco.
5: Baxter Black, now 70, says his poetry is born out of life experience, his own and those he's come to know.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear that thunder?
3: Voila!
5: He grew up and lived most of his life in places where it doesn't rain. He's called Arizona home since 1997.
2: So I live in a grand part of the world and one of the things that lured me here, if, if I could call it that, was I made the mistake of driving through this for the first time in August. And it was verdant and green. And I thought, my gosh, it's like the jungle here. I think I could do this.
5: Sure enough, he's written a poem about rain.
2: It's called Feast or Famine. In feast or famine, at least examine the game we came to play. Cause win or lose, it's how you use the cards that come your way. Just let her rain, the rancher said. I've built up quite a thirst. I know the low road's plum washed out. The tank dam's bound to burst. We'll have to plant the wheat again, and clean the water gaps. But you won't hear this fool complain if it reaches to my shafts. The truth is, friends, we've needed this. We've been so dry so long, I thought we'd have to sell the cows and pay the pipers song. The winter grass just lay there stiff for months it never changed. I'd walk out through the cracklin' brown that covered all my range and watch the wind blow dust clouds where good grass should have been. I'd count the bales in the stack and calculate again the days of feeding I had left before I'd have to face the ultimate decision. What I'd do to save the place. The weatherman was helpful, except he always told the truth. Piddling chance of 10% meant it just rained in Duluth. And that's, keep her coming baby. That's nice for Minnesota, but it don't help me a bit. I gave up chewing red man, so I wouldn't have to spit. But he said last night, a chance of rain more than just a trace. I washed the car and left the windows open just in case. And sure enough, this morning, big old clouds come rolling in, and they parked above the driveway. And the thunder made a din that rattled all the windows in the house where I sat still. And at two, it started raining. And I still ain't got my fill. It's coming down in buckets, like it's paying back a debt, and me. I'm standing in the front yard in my shorts and soaking wet. When the sun comes out tomorrow, and sparkles all around off pools and puddles standing like big diamonds in the ground. I remember feasting famine, but when it comes to rain, you take the feast when offered if you live out on the plain.
1: That profile of Baxter Black was produced by Mitchell Riley for Arizona Illustrated in 2017. You can see that story now on our website at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.
0: Thank you to the City of Bisbee for their support of Arizona Spotlight.